In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. The United States' relationship with cannabis is complex. From its designation as a Schedule I narcotic, to state legalization for medical use and adult recreational use, it's been a mixed message. On today's podcast, we discuss cannabis use. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Let's go back. Do you remember the year 1983? Very well. You had a biting problem. <laughs> <laughs> I was um, in preparation for this discussion, trying to remove, you know, your personal beliefs from the conversation, but understanding how culture has a tendency to, to shape our perceptions about things and the environment that we live in also kind of opens you up to, to certain things that at one time you may have not been receptive to. So in 1983, I don't know if you remember a very memorable episode of Different Strokes. We had a very special guest on that episode. Nancy Reagan came on and talked about just saying no to drugs. Mm. And like certain things like that stick with you, especially at a young age, because I was probably, what, five years old? And I do say no to drugs, but... Very effective, Nancy Reagan, right? Well, I would say... I would say... It, I remember it, the, it, uh, the egg commercial... Remember that? Scared the, the hell pan. out of me. This is your brain. <laughs> yeah. This is your it's brain a nice little drugs. egg, and then, and then it cracks and just fries and says, this is your brain on drugs. That's right. And it's been repeated, and, and there's been new versions of that particular campaign. But um, I was always scared of drugs. Didn't really take drugs. Sure, I experimented in college with certain things. A lot of people do and did. Um, but then I moved out to California in 2005. California is a state that for marijuana usage um, at that point was for medical use. And I was in Los Angeles, very close to like Venice Beach, Santa Monica area. And what I recognized was everybody had a medical marijuana card. And that, that was the environment, right? So you have a bunch of young people that are, I'm going to say some were exploiting the system and using it for recreational purposes because it was really easy to get a medical marijuana card. And I never got one, never really wanted to participate in it. But I was trying to determine whether or not, um, is it because of the way that I was raised, the environment that I was in, the messages that were put out there that maybe had the stigma to it, and I saw it as a really bad substance, but there could be some benefits of it. So when we talk about medical marijuana, there's a lot of things that we can discuss in terms of how it's used and what it could treat. But the confusing thing is the United States sees marijuana as a Schedule One narcotic, which means it's illegal and you can be prosecuted for it. But states have their own laws and those laws are allowing the residents of those states to use marijuana for medical purposes and now some for recreational purposes. But because it's just the state, 
any research is very limited and we can take this in a number of ways. So why don't we focus on the medical? So let me ask you, let's, let me ask you a question. Schedule one. Yeah. It's a schedule one narcotic, which means the United States identifies that as like as a harmful narcotic, harmful, like, uh, like heroin. So it limits research as well, right? Yeah. Because most of the research here in the United States is done by, you know, businesses that can ultimately profit from it. So schedule one drugs are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. This includes heroin, LSD, cannabis, ecstasy. So it's always been fascinating to me is why does the United States support the use of some drugs that are clearly dangerous over other ones? We talked before we got on air the opioid crisis here in the United States. Yeah. Or we've talked about the dangers of benzodiazepines, you know, Xanax and Clonopin. So there's this acceptance of some drugs that are clearly dangerous, including SSRIs. And we view that as almost as medicinal. But the United States has identified cannabis as a Schedule One drug. So that's confusing to me. Just on face value, I'm sure... This has a lot to do with industry-driven potential financial benefits, maybe the pharmaceutical industry. And perceptions. Well, I think it's it's just economics and, and then oversight and trying to control it because you can grow marijuana basically wherever you would like. Because it is or, a weed. And you can't engineer bends. Well, I guess you can, but you, you know what I mean? You can't just say, oh, I'm going to go in my basement and, right. and do this. So I think it has to, a lot to do with the fact that they cannot control uh, necessarily the, the marijuana industry because anybody can grow it. So we know that there are people who are fanatical about cannabis and its benefits. Um, there are, are a subset of the American culture who believes in its medicinal qualities. And potentially there are many medical benefits or usages for cannabis. I mean, I think of... First and foremost, people who are you know struggling with cancer treatments and the after effects and the side effects of like chemo and the pain uh, seems to be a much safer option for pain when you compare it to opiates. We would all agree with that, correct? Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's my field where it is being widely promoted as a drug for mental illness where there really isn't any strong supporting evidence for that. And there's a lot going on in the state of Pennsylvania, where we come from right here, which is Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A lot has recently happened with cannabis because in 2019, the Pennsylvania Department of Health changed its rules to allow patients to use medical marijuana for other conditions than what it was previously approved for, which were other medical conditions anxiety disorders. So Pennsylvania is one of only a few states that has medical marijuana for anxiety. But the alternative for anxiety would be uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or going on another drug to treat it. How is it? How do you see this as different for anxiety? So I want to understand your perspective. Remember, Kelly and I were in the studio. We did a 
podcast episode on anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is a little bit different, right? We, we live in this culture where we've been conditioned to believe that our emotions can be symptoms and that an effective treatment for anxiety would be, well, how do you decrease anxiety? And everything about neuroscience and the anxiety disorder literature as far as treatments, because I would support behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapies for anxiety disorders as the frontline most effective treatment. It's based around the concept of exposure that our, uh, <clears throat> that anxiety is a evolutionarily adaptive emotion that allows your body to be active for a potential threat. And so fear and anxiety, you know, very much the same thing. Your body isn't a stress response reaction when there is a perceived threat. Now, there are people who've been exposed to traumatic events or could also have a biological disposition uh, or a temperament to anxiety and fear. Can grow up in environments where parents are worriers and very protective. So you can certainly see where prolonged anxiety can interfere with functioning and also certainly be a precursor to a lot of medical conditions. Stress kills. So if you are experiencing chronic stress, it affects your immune system. It uh, certainly is going to be a precursor to many medical conditions, chronic inflammation, and so forth. So I'm not discounting like how damaging chronic stress and fear can be, gut issues and so forth. However, the body is very adaptive. And so there are effective treatments, cognitive behavioral therapy being one, which allows for the exposure toward fear. Because when you start interpreting your own internal sensations of anxiety and fear as dangerous, you develop this fear of fear. It becomes this conditioned reaction. So then the normal sensations of increased heart rate or butterflies in your belly or your mind is getting caught up into a potential threat, trying to escape that with a substance, alcohol, weed, mm -hmm. could be food, could be something else, avoidance, tends to intensify and exacerbate the anxiety condition until it can become an anxiety disorder. So, you, so there's a learning component to this that you have to learn when there is an imminent risk or danger or threat. Um, and you can expose yourself to situations that you previously may have been viewing as threatening and that you can learn you can tolerate the experience. Additionally, if you've gone through traumatic events, actually facing those memories and situations that uh, certainly like trigger the experience of fear and anxiety because they're associated or related to the traumatic event are part of the treatment. So there's this inhibitory learning process in behavioral treatments that allows a person to self-regulate. The idea of believing that we can turn to something to try to manage that symptom is going to create some form of dependence on the substance. So the question always is, is what 
is an effective treatment, both short-term and long-term. And that's the challenge of American culture because we begin to think about mental health as the escape or the minimization of a sensation or a feeling, an emotion, as a symptom. Like we're identifying that's a mental illness. Like if you feel sad, depressed, anxious, that's some mental illness. When I think people who think deeply about this and are involved in the treatment of these conditions, we tend to want them to think about these things in alternative ways. The acceptance of your emotions, the acceptance of your experience. We've talked about the benefits of meditation. Just the act of sitting with and being with emotions can regulate and decrease its intensity. Additionally, the body reacts to other conditions that could be influencing how you feel. Nutrient deficiency, lack of sun exposure and exercise. So the body will react in ways that represent a diseased state, which can be confusing. It's not necessarily like a mental illness, but it's your body and those sensations that are related to those nutrient deficiencies that can get misinterpreted as something like anxiety. That misinterpretation of the anxiety can then intensify a fear reaction to it. So I know that's a long-winded and complicated kind of response, but bottom line for me is the more that you try to escape anxiety through a substance, the more you will suffer with it the rest of your life. I am convinced of that. Now, that doesn't take away the fact that there may be some short-term benefits from something that is pharmaceutically based. And I think, first and foremost, people who've gone through like a sexual assault or rape, uh, the loss of a loved one, someone, you know, somebody died in front of you, and you're now you're, you're overwhelmed with fear and your sleep is impaired. If there's something that can help take the edge off to help someone sleep for a, a short period of time where they're working through what just happened, I think a lot of reasonable people aren't against that kind of idea. It's how it's miscommunicated to the general public as a treatment. A treatment means it's like, here, take this, and potentially for the rest of your life, and people are taking these drugs without understanding the adverse consequences. And there's so many variables too. What, what age, for what condition, to what extent. And so obviously when we don't have those regulations around it, how do people consent to something without being fully informed? And in where we are, certainly in the state of Pennsylvania, and Sean mentioned this happening in California, it's really people identify then with an anxiety disorder in order to receive cannabis for recreational use. Yeah, when I was um, preparing for this discussion, I was listening to a, another podcast. It was uh, a medical marijuana. It was, I think, uh, maybe the state of Missouri. But the doctor was talking about um, the complications that exist right now in terms of getting the information that a doctor needs to speak uh, informed about it. And what a lot of them are resorting to is because there's not enough research out there to support any certain efficacy or perspective on things. They often instruct their um, their clients to just go to one of these medical dispensaries and talk to the. Um, I think he was he kept on saying pot tender, so like almost like a bartender. <laughs> they were calling a he was saying a pot tender. So the the expectation is that some of these individuals at these locations are informed enough or educated to speak um, in a way to instruct somebody like what might be the proper dosage or delivery mechanism to help them with the issue that they're, they're working towards. But 
the reality is that most of these dispensaries, there is no process to educate people. So they're like learning along the way. The whole system is just, for me, it's just very confusing and overwhelming. But it's corrupt. So uh, let me let me bring this is this is corruption on a on a kind of a wide scale. Well, I, I, here. maybe it's corruption, but it's so talk- it's so early in the. If this becomes federally approved, there will be a whole another system of approvals and and regulations. Things would get better, I would anticipate. I doubt it. I mean, you and I have different viewpoints on this. So I think when when the federal government gets involved, uh, we rarely see improvement in the way things become regulated and provided. Oh. I'm, I'm in favor of, of states' rights. I, I'm I would, also a, a libertarian in this, in this viewpoint. So I, to me, it's not about restricting the individual rights. It's about providing information. And so there's going to be corruption. So this is, I want to be able well, to I just want to correct things. myself. I, when I mean improvements, I, improvements in understanding of, um, of the molecules within cannabis that leads to some type of relief and understanding like that's what doesn't exist it's like the formulations of these products could have some benefits for a lot of the the things that are people using them for um, especially on on the medical side with pain relief and and sleep and insomnia that doesn't exist right now so it's people just saying like what they think instead of what they know so i guess if you remove that uh schedule one designation then at the federal level, then I guess you're right. There could be more research into it. Um, but I want to go back to this article because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, it's from the research of Spotlight Pennsylvania, which is a media outlet. So they, according to Spotlight Pennsylvania, Anxiety disorders are now the leading reason Pennsylvanians get a medical marijuana card. A first-of-its-kind analysis of more than 1.1 million certification records obtained by Spotlight Pennsylvania reveals. So we're talking about since 2019, 1.1 million certification of, of cannabis for an anxiety disorder. Okay, The records which... The Department of Health attempted to keep secret by suing Spotlight Pennsylvania in state court, which that concerns me. Um, offers the first comp- comprehensive look of how the decision by former Democratic Governor Tom Wolf's administration transformed Pennsylvania's medical marijuana program. Um, basically, in the eyes of many people, it allows anyone at any time to get a medical marijuana card. Why? Because all you have to do is say you're anxious. Yeah, I mean, this is what I saw in California. Is everybody? You could go down to Venice, and there's doctors on the boardwalk, and you go and <laughs> you say you have anxiety and trouble sleeping, and he'll give you a medical marijuana card. Like it's and the and the the revenue would come in because don't you have to pay a fee just yearly? Correct. You pay, you pay a fee. Yeah, I'm not sure how that works. I'm, po- it, I'm it, positive. It will generate revenue for the state of Pennsylvania. But you mean the medical marijuana card? Yeah, so if I get it and I go to a dispensary, I'm pretty sure I have to pay you know, for that card and I have to pay a yearly fee. So what's interesting is I tried to understand some of the research for cannabis for anxiety. I, I found some stuff. This was a 2019 poll. Um, it was through Gallup. But well, oh, forget the polls. Can we? Can you just <laughs> let's? Can, can I? Can I just point something out though, too? To because is marijuana itself has two distinct yes. features, 
And one of them is THC, which yep. that actually, correct me if I'm wrong, that's why when you, when you, if you do take it, you become more anxious. It actually has. It depends. But yeah, but still, like THC is the psychoactive part of the drug. And then the, the CBD yep. is the non-psychoactive But you part. can administer THC through um, like transdermal and not have the psychoactive effects because it's, it, it'll it'll drag itself out like because there's there's all these mechanisms of delivery right so i mean this is where it gets a little like overwhelming and confusing you could you could smoke it you could do sublingual you could do an edible you can do the the patches and the thc or the cbd can be involved in those and how you respond to it different is different because of the, the delivery mechanism so thc delivered differently you're saying is going to have a different effect yes. that's what you're saying yeah because in not in my personal experience, but just that there are many people that have taken marijuana and they get extremely anxious and paranoid. Well, that's that's the other thing that's very confusing about it is there's different strains and the human body reacts differently to those strains. So depending on which one, there's some that you could take um, and it'll relax you, calm you, put you to sleep, where others you take and it'll keep you up for, you know, eight to ten hours. So without any like really true understanding of what it is you're taking or somebody informed and telling you, um, don't take this for that, take this for that and take this instead of that, like that's where it, people can get into trouble. See, that's why I don't like to take drugs because I can drink a glass of wine and I know how I'm going to feel. I don't like the, um, the almost like loss of, of understanding or like the feeling of taking any type of drug because sometimes the, the effects kick in later on. And to me, that's the frightening thing. So what? go back to the corruption. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to piggyback off your points here. There are so many individual differences. That's why I am in support of informed consent. Yep. People being able to make a decision what is best for their bodies in consultation with a expert. Experts. Who have the adequate knowledge to be able to provide risks and benefits. So when we look, the reason why other states have been rejecting medical marijuana cannabis for anxiety conditions is because it's generally believed to worsen anxiety conditions in the long run. A national, major national study in 2017 noted that the regular cannab cannabis use is likely to increase the risk for developing social anxiety disorder. And uh, there's just lacking any scientific evidence for specific doses that could work and strains and to speak to all the things that you were just noting about all the different ways that these, the chemicals can be extracted. And we know from the placebo effect mm -hmm. that we don't actually understand if it's the chemicals extracted that can have some of that effect. It could just be a, a sensation that's created and then the placebo an active placebo response can allow somebody to feel better i see no problem with it again when it comes down to saying people should have the right to be able to make decisions but they have to be aware of all the consequences um the issue with the corruption here in the state of pennsylvania and i'm sure elsewhere is that uh, some patients schedule appointments with doctors through third-party certification companies, businesses that the State Department of Health says it cannot regulate. And according to this article, Pennsylvania um, 
Previous Spotlight Pennsylvania re- reporting revealed that some of these businesses make misleading or incorrect medical claims. We see this all over the internet. Um, from unequal advertising rules and allegedly tie a doctor's pay, uh, payments to patient approvals. So their profits are dependent on patient approvals with some offering money-back guarantees if customers are not approved for a card. This is concerning, right? So we talk about this all the time at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health because we're a cognitive behavioral treatment center for anxiety disorders. So we're going to support the acceptance-based movement, your ability to regulate your own internal states through training, right? So learning of skills, training, and exposure, exposure to what is being avoided. That's tried and true, uh, you know, over centuries and centuries, millions of years, human beings have adapted to very adverse conditions and we can overcome fear and anxiety. When you go seeking out the drugs to try to regulate your emotions, we don't have a lot of good evidence that's going to suggest that that's going to create any long-term value. In fact, it can create dependence and then the long-term use is certainly associated with mood and anxiety-related problems. So what do we do in this situation when people so easily can obtain an anxiety disorder diagnosis? There's problems associated with that as well. Um, An anxiety disorder diagnosis should be made only after careful observation over a long period of time. Even the state of Pennsylvania, when they approved cannabis for medical marijuana, clearly stated it should not be a frontline treatment. Maybe an adjunct treatment for the short term, but it should not be it should not be viewed as a frontline and primary treatment. That was from Rachel Levine, who is uh, now uh, in the federal government. I the think. Admiral. The Admiral um, Rachel Levine. What is the frontline treatment? It is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's exposure-based treatments. Okay. Yeah. Not, um, not other drugs? Nope. Okay, good. Nope. Good. Um, can we just get the business of cannabis out of the way? I just... I, th- I think it's important because it's going to continue to, to grow and regardless of what happens. So uh, combined U.S. medical and recreational cannabis sales could reach, um, it was estimated to be about $33 billion by the end of uh, 2022. And I saw a lot of projections that it's going to continue to grow. By the end of 2026, it's projected to be you know, $52 billion. I saw different studies showing different amounts, but the one thing that was consistent within there was about two thirds of it was recreational use. A third of it was medical. So that, that kind of ratio um, kind of holds true there. And a lot of these sales are happening through recreational dispensaries. Um, looks like about 54% are happening through recreational dispensaries. One third buy from friends and one fifth purchase from medical dispensaries. So 20% at these medical dispensaries. So 21 states in the United States now are legal for recreational use. Um, and there are some that are just still medical only. Medical only is the state of Pennsylvania. But the, the kind of the trend is it starts medical. And then over a number of years, it migrates to recreational. And then they start selling it that way. So the framework is there now for big business to become a really humongous business. That is the goal. I mean, there are there are companies traded on the NASDAQ uh, that focus on uh, CBD uh, products, 
either beverages or edibles or vapes, things like that. And CBD itself is absolutely legal federal on the federal level, but THC or so they go by that, correct? So if it's like less than 0.3% THC. Yeah, but the THC component is what is where a lot of the recreational use is. Correct. So if you have two-thirds doing of it, your business. You're doing it to feel good. That's that's right. So the THC component is what's in a lot of, the, it's the edibles and, and the beverages um, and the vapes and the smoking the flower. That's so where all the money is. What, so. what is the goal? Yeah, that's what I want to get to is if, if it is the goal to use the medical uh, kind of like that label to then legalize marijuana recreationally in the federal. What is the what is the goal from the federal government, or what is the goal from the biz, business side? So well, that, yeah, for <laughs> me, business side's easy. Well, I want to know what, what the goal of the individual is. What are they looking for by using it? I'm not a marijuana right. user. Uh, what is the experience that the person is trying to create that makes this drug so attractive? I think it's an alternative to drinking alcohol uh, without the hangover. Um, and then other illegal drugs that maybe people partake in on the weekends um, without that, you know, the downside of it. Uh, so it's, it's just a substitute for any other way that people like to kick back on the, the weekends or at the end of the night. Is it addictive? It's a good question. I don't know. So I asked that question because you see a lot more people vaping now right? Like having to take their vape just to get through the day. And this is the thing that I'm seeing, unfortunately, in my practice is people who struggle with anxiety, just sucking on the vape, vape throughout the day to get through the day. And tolerance. So we talked about what makes something dependent or have an addictive quality. Well, one of them is tolerance. So the more you use, you develop a tolerance level for it. And so you require more and more of that substance in order to achieve the same result. And we do see that in cannabis. And often with anxiety, when that sensation or that feeling becomes something that's dangerous to the individual, you're going to see them start like vaping and vaping throughout the day. You also have withdrawal. So I'm going through one client right now I'm working with to decrease the amount of vaping of cannabis to deal with anxiety. So it starts off like six or seven times a day. So you're using throughout the day just to just to kind of blunt that feeling. They don't report feeling high anymore. Mm -hmm. It really is just trying to blunt or escape a feeling. So there's, there's differences between recreational use where I think, well, Sean says kick back on the weekends and some people get high. And, you know, we grew up in that era with like Snoop Dogg and, you know, it's like a party drug, you know, you, you relax, you get high. It's a lifestyle. It doesn't seem to affect everyone the same exact way. I've had, Clients throughout the years who would use cannabis on a regular, uh, you know, almost every day, and they said they'd have to take what's called tea breaks, tolerance breaks. So, you know, they try to quit for like three or four weeks to try to regain some of the ability to get high again from the drug. But it's certainly a, it's certainly a mechanism for them to try to not f experience or feel certain emotions. From a mental health perspective, I think that's counter to what we know. But what is the, like from drinking, from taking CBD and using the different ex extracts, what's the ultimate goal of the individual? Is it just to feel more relaxed, more calm? I would imagine. Um, don't you? Don't, I guess it depends on what time of day they're using it. 
right? So you mentioned you have one client who starts the day off, you know, smoking a vape. Because there are some of those strains that help with... Well, I would think focus. I would think if you're, 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 you have an unquiet mind and you're thinking about everything all the time, I would imagine that that has a very, you know, lucid effect where you can focus. I've heard people say that they do it and they are more creative, more, you know, there's, I wouldn't say more ambition, but they, they can work better Yeah. after they've smoked a bowl. Joe or, Rogan states that. Yeah. Um, comedians. So Joe Rogan, Bill Maher they will state that they're able to be more creative right. when they're using and they'll smoke before they're writing. I mean, I, I worked in advertising, so... Oh, so you used to smoke before you wrote? <laughs> no, I, I, there are people that would smoke before going into work, mm. um, especially, you know, the creative guys, because then they would sit, they'd focus, they'd be relaxed, and they would just, you know, go about their day. Uh, there was also people that weren't even on the creative side that worked with mostly numbers on media and they would smoke just because they would be staring at a screen a lot of it and they would just have to focus. And for them, that's, that's what worked. But I don't know. I think it comes down to the individual. And like anything, there are people that are prone to addiction and you need to understand who you are because if it's alcohol or some other drug, if you're using it every day, yeah, you're going to be addicted. Like we know now that there's an, an addiction gene that is within your body. So if you had parents that were alcoholics and you're using cannabis as a substitute, you're going to get addicted to it. It's just, you need to learn your own self-control. So I have made recommendations for some of my clients to get medical grade cannabis. And it's only been under situations of post-traumatic stress for people who can't sleep. The nightmares, um, the inability, the insomnia, the inability to sleep. Because I think that that is so debilitating that it makes it very, very difficult, if near impossible, to do the work in the therapy when you're so sleep deprived. And so there are some, I guess they're called tincture blends, like THC tincture blends. Yes. That have helped some of my clients be able to get seven, eight hours of sleep when they were getting three hours before. The one um, podcast I was listening to, the doctor was talking about the efficacy that he witnesses personally, because there is no data to support it, but he does recommend it for insomnia. He said the efficacy he was seeing was like 90%. So, I mean, that comes down to selectively choosing who it may be appropriate for and understanding what versions, tinctures, types benefit and then instructing them that way. So there's a lot there. And he was also saying that a lot of his clients, they were self-medicating for a long time. So smoking flour and because it was easy for them to get. And they would tell the doctor, well, this is what I do and it's working for me. So he would always say, well, you can continue to do that. But this is what I'm seeing on my end that is being more beneficial. It's up to you to determine, you know, what works for you. You may want to try this approach instead of smoking the flour and you may benefit even more from it. But he just doesn't force them to do it so so it would be an ideal system like in my mind i have an ideal system i i do, I do too um let, let me hear yours i i don't think it should be an illegal one's narcotic um i think it should be legal in the united states um there's a number of benefits that could come from that we would stop putting people in prison for for marijuana which i think is ridiculous uh 
it would open up access to a whole bunch of funding for continued research and development and, um, and improvements. It would allow uh, states to, to sell across state borders, uh, which would then help kind of self-regulate itself. And, um, and then the tax revenue, the job growth, there's a lot that could come from that. And I, that's the justification that exists right now for the states that have legalized it for medical and recreational is that it leads to more jobs for their citizens, it leads to additional tax revenue, and it cuts down on some of the illegal trade that's happening. And for years, we've spent billions of dollars trying to, to, to shut down illegal um, the drug trade and have not been very successful in that. And this is one way to just kind of push at least the cannabis portion of it, the marijuana portion of it out of the equation. A lot of people who follow me or listen to me on this podcast would maybe have this idea that I'm against all psychiatric drugs or any drugs in general. And the truth of the matter is, is what I'm against is the misrepresentation of science and a minimization of harms. So there can be some benefits to psychiatric drugs in the short term. That's generally what I support because I think the long-term use of psychiatric drugs are extremely dangerous and will destroy your health and your mental health in the long run. And that's mainly because of all the withdrawal effects that come after the dependency and then the withdrawal. No, I mean, that's part of it. Um, there's a lot of negative health effects from taking psychiatric drugs. Um, obviously, there's an adaptation to the body, but it's more complicated than we should discuss on here. But the long-term use of psychiatric drugs have very poor outcomes. Um, additionally, they just decrease all, you know, decrease life expectancy, increase all-cause mortality. Mm. So there's a lot of negative effects. And if you're going to call something an antidepressant, for example, then you know, it's got to be proven to be able to help somebody overcome a depressive episode. People are on these drugs for 20, 30 years, but I digress. But the idea of that you could take something in the short term for someone who's in a crisis situation or can't sleep or is highly agitated or in an episode, because really it's a, it's a drug-induced chemical imbalance to de depress the, um, the nervous system. So you're basically trying to create a sedative kind of response in order for that person to calm down, maybe be able to sleep, maybe get them out of an episode. It's just how these drugs are promoted as like long-term solutions for manufactured disorders are the problem that I have. And I do believe that cannabis, marijuana should be free. I'm not a supporter in the federal governments and the states being able to intervene and tell us what drug you can use and what drug you can't use. And obviously that leads to corruption and lobbyists and industries being able to support their development of their drugs, which ultimately can have long-term health, negative health effects. We saw the opioid crisis here in the United States. I want people to be able to be provided accurate information. So I don't think... Cannabis should be legal for minors. Oh, like no, yeah. The risks for developing brains are much more significant than older adults. And I think it's really important people to distinguish, yes, the age of 18, you're a legal adult in the United States, but you're still an adolescent. And your brain is developing up until age 25. So even the CDC 
is very clear about marijuana as a public health concern for teenagers. And we see this. Uh, teenagers who consistently, teenagers and young adults who consistently smoke marijuana are at an increased re- rate of psychosis. So the development of later schizophrenia. So there are psychotic episodes that are much more frequent in the young person who is using cannabis. Uh, There are tons of negative long-term health effects to your mental health and your physical health from smoking at a young age. And there are some fast facts here that the CDC has. Marijuana use may have permanent effects on a developing brain when use begins in adolescence, especially with heavy use. Uh, Compared with teens who do not use marijuana, teens who use marijuana are more likely to quit high school, not get a college degree. Uh, It's an increased risk of mental health-related issues, such as depression, social anxiety, and people who use marijuana are more likely to develop temporary psychosis, long-lasting mental health disorders, including schizophrenia, The association between marijuana and schizophrenia is stronger in people who start using marijuana at an earlier age and use more frequently. I was talking to one of my police officer friends last night, and he said the impaired driving situation is something that we're not talking enough about. Yeah. You know, you're driving while impaired by by marijuana. It's dangerous. It's illegal. And how do officers test for that? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. We should have asked that. You were there last night. I wasn't talking to him, though. <laughs> oh. Well, we were at a wrestling match last night. He was, you know, I when you said, I forgot about we were doing a podcast at 8 a.m. this morning. Oh, my God. I forgot because I was <laughs> wrestling all day. And we were, and he's like, oh, you should talk about the impaired driving. You have young people who are using this more frequently and then getting behind the wheel of the car. Let me see if I can find stuff on it. Keep talking. Yeah. So, like, that that young person that I'm working with who was, you know, vaping and sucking down THC, you know, six times a day. Obviously, that person is driving to get to work or to school or other things. So that person is in all likelihood some degree of impairment getting behind the wheel of a car. And so even that like that sedated that um sedating emotional blunting, it impairs concentration, impairs focus for some people. It can affect memory and learning you know that's one thing that's kind of been widely publicized through popular culture it's uh you know the person who that pothead kind of idea you know you the short-term memory effects Uh, there's reduced coordination there's difficulty maintaining attention so yes some people will smoke it and say it enhances their their concentration but generally speaking it's it it makes it more difficult to to focus on one thing uh, let's see. So the, um, there's a lot of mixed messages then. There, there's because tons. on one hand, you really do have a side that says there's much more, this is healthier for you than you think. On the other side, you just listed off a bunch of, you know, really my, horrible things that reasons as to why you should not do it. My guess is it probably depends on the person. Right. You know, so you mentioned before certain people who might have a very difficult time getting out of their own head. And uh, well, right now it is on the increase in schools and you know the vp brought in a box that they just confiscated of last year with the box was half filled with vapes so it's all over the place and i don't know that everything is thc 
I'm not, you know, it could be nicotine, it could be other things, but these things are all over the place and we're, you know. And that's not even talking about the synthetic marijuana that's really dangerous. We won't yeah. even talk yeah. about that. So here's just a quick, uh, testing for drug impairment is problematic due to the limitations of drug detecting technology and the lack of an agreed upon limit to determine impairment. Um, so like with uh, alcohol, it's 0. 0.08, um, but each state has their own impaired driving laws. Pennsylvania has zero tile, zero tolerance. Uh, others have under the influence of DUID, which drug, uh, what would that be? Drug under impairment, whatever that acronym is. I'll what are you talking about? Driving under the influence? Driving under the influence of drugs. <laughs> that makes sense. DUID? DUID. Okay. That makes sense. Um, according to NHTSA, which is the National Highway Transit system <laughs> whatever that acronym is so we have too many acronyms yeah. in this world uh, drug use among fatally injured drivers who were tested for drugs rose from 25 percent in 2007 to 42 percent in 2016 and marijuana presence doubled in this time frame so yeah it's a problem um one other thing uh one i think it's important when we're talking about research and the need for it um, one thing to note, in 2022, the, um, here in the United States, our Senate passed a marijuana research bill that happened in November, and the, the goal of the bill is to facilitate research on cannabis and its potential health benefits and um, the application process for scientific cannabis studies and removing existing barriers for research. So there is some... So there'll be some ma major studies coming up in the next few years with that. Potentially, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it all comes down to uh, money. Correct. Right? So who wants to put the dollars behind it to, to come up with the study to show its use? It's going to end up being bigger business. Um, and I guess it would go through the FDA. Um, is, that's probably how it would end up working its way through well, the they, system. They've been so good in the past. You know, <laughs> such a good track record. Yeah. Um, where do we want to go from here now? I'm still baffled at the, I guess, because of the lack of research, you have the two mixed messages and focus on, you, you had said earlier, you, you know, you've, you've told some individuals say, well, I want you to, you know, almost like try this, uh, cannabis and see if, you know, just for short term. So with, let me... With, yeah, yeah, let me explain the circumstances. The impairment of their condition is severe. It's post-traumatic stress where frontline safe and effective interventions have been provided first. The person is struggling due to insomnia and the effects that nightmares and poor sleep have on their quality of life, their mental health. And they're all a result of uh, a trauma reaction. So I do believe that you, if you're giving people the highest quality of information and their ultimate goal is to overcome an anxiety disorder, you do not recommend cannabis as a frontline intervention. Additionally, same thing with insomnia or sleep-related problems. You do want to try the safest, most effective treatments first prior to turning to these drugs. 
But we have to realize that some people do not respond to the treatments that we do provide. And we have to provide them other options. And so I've had success with it. I've had success with the with the people who were struggling with insomnia. And then I believe it allowed them to have more energy, focus, and motivation to be able to enter into the treatment and face what has happened to them. With the hope then that um, in that short term and then with cognitive behavioral continuing that eventually they would be able to, you know, hopefully resolve that without continuing to be medicating. Well, we're talking about sleep and I'm, you know, I'm looking here at some of the CBD options and the, you know, the question is ultimately a, a scientific one or a research one. Uh, why is the person having sleep-related problems? So let's say that I, I hypothesize that they have sleep-related problems, Kelly, due to post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Well, then I would also believe that once the post-traumatic stress resolved itself, that sleep would improve. So you can obviously begin experimenting without taking the, the tincture or the CBD or whatever is utilized at that time. Um, but there's other reasons why someone might have sleep-related problems. And so you have to kind of investigate that. Um, there's a whole literature base in sleep medicine. And there could be physical problems. There could be problems related to uh, circadian rhythms. There could be behavioral aspects. So there's so many factors that could influence why somebody was having insomnia. And the key question when everyone is working in my field, in mental health field, is you want to be able to target what you believe are the factors that are influencing the problem. And that's my greatest, one of my greatest conflicts that I have with the modern mental health industrial complex is that's not what's happening. You're, you know, you're treating some symptom without understanding all the, the causes. So there's nothing that can happen in a quick 15, 30, 45 minute interview and somebody leaves with a prescription. We should really be spending time with people and understanding what the problems are and then providing them the best available evidence so they can make an informed decision. There are some risks to using cannabis for sleep. We should be aware of that. What are the risks? Because the only risks that I'm aware of, some people say are happy side effect (laughs) well one study found high doses of thc at night can lead to unwanted side effects the following day um impaired memory and sleep okay sleepiness grogginess so not knowing that comes down to the those levels the thc and and kind of ramping it up Mm -hmm. everyone's it goes back to everyone's different Um, cannabis withdrawal can produce sleep-related side effects, Mm -hmm. uh, strange dreams, difficulty falling asleep, less time spent in deep sleep. I've listened to, um, I listened to Dr. Drew every once in a while. He comes on Adam Carolla and he was talking about how difficult it is to get clients off of marijuana addiction and, and with the withdrawal effects he said are, are very, very challenging. Yeah. So that makes me think it is addictive. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And so if I stick to what I really believe in, the short-term use of some drug may have some beneficial qualities for, for some people, and they should have the freedom to explore those oppor- opportunities to be able to use that in order to improve their quality of life. 
things kind of work on like a a curve, you know, sometimes there's a, that you hit the point of diminishing returns. So you might get a benefit from something for a while and then the benefits really decrease probably due to, to tolerance and adaptation within the body. And so now you're just, you're really substituting one problem for a new one. So you, you know, you have this anxiety condition or you're overcoming post-traumatic stress and now you're developing dependence on another substance. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find something that I, I, at least I thought was interesting about um, the percentage of U.S. adults that have tried cannabis. Eight years ago, it was only 40%. And the recent study from YouGov, uh, the poll said 52%. And they broke it down in terms of uh, regional, uh, political ideation, and some of the ages as well. So the largest percentage, of course, would be 45 to 64-year-olds. So, you know, longer uh, longer life um, opportunities to at least try it or have tried it in the past doesn't mean they're currently using. Uh, and 18 to 29-year-olds is at 37%. So when you talk about that young developing brain, they're using 18 to 29-year-olds because what I'm seeing, when it, at least when it comes to recreational uses, they're not calling it recreation use anymore. They're changing the language to adult use. So they're, they're trying to make sure that they're marketing it in a way that it's for adults only. So you'll see that language change and probably become more prominent. But uh, conservatives, 45%. Liberals, 60%. So some interesting stuff there. Um, here's another interesting thing. 21% of dry January participants are replacing alcohol with cannabis and CBD, which to me defeats the purpose of what dry January is supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, but that, that seems to be something that I've even seen in friend groups is people stop, they stop drinking alcohol and they'll, you know, they'll go to marijuana. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, they broke it down by age also. Um 55 and older that are doing dry January, uh, 54% said I'm not replacing it with anything. And the other percentage was um, non-alcoholic beverages. And then it looks like about 25, 26% are replacing it with cannabis products. Interesting. It's a bit of a sad state of affairs when you think about it, that so many people have to turn to a drug in order to enjoy experiences in life Mm. like if we're thinking about it in in those terms alcohol certainly is very socially acceptable and in moderation not that much of a problem but in excess obviously creates horrible problems and it's not like alcohol is a great substance to use but it's so widely marketed to all of us and it's so acceptable that we come here on a podcast and we're talking about cannabis is you know is cannabis any worse or any better than alcohol you know you start asking yourself those questions some of the justification for people who are users of cannabis are to say hey why are you to judge i mean it's alcohol has problems too or many people will say well it's better than than alcohol where where you just where you get me is when you start talking about things in terms of uh, like a medicinal quality to it. Like it's a plant and by smoking it on a regular basis, it's going to be health promoting. That's where I don't think the research supports it. 
I support everybody's right to choose what they want. If that's part of your lifestyle and you want to live that and it doesn't harm or affect anybody else, why should we care, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think we just, as professionals, we have a responsibility to talk about what are the harms and to be as clear as possible of those harms. I think when you see doctors who are giving medical marijuana cards for anxiety disorders in 18 years old, 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old. That's a real problem. It crosses the line for me on risk and benefit. We don't have the evidence to support that that's going to help that person, but we have plenty of evidence to say it's going to harm that person. So why are you doing something that's going to harm Mm -hmm. Uh, under the guise of it it being medicinal? And that's where we've kind of got into some murky territory here in the state of Pennsylvania is that they've allowed it to be legalized for anxiety disorders but there isn't the informed consent process their clients just are not informed of all the potential risks and it's now become something that can be fraudulent in the manner in which it's administered through third party organizations it becomes a money maker yeah and it's legalized in pennsylvania for things like pain management things like that correct but then when the anxiety came out it was like well almost that everybody experiences anxiety and so so if, <laughs> anyone you know, can get it anybody can yeah. get it and right now it's it's it looks like it's about half of all uh medical cards are anxiety wow. disorders yeah yeah um studies showing use of cbd 40 percent for pain 20 percent for anxiety 11 percent for sleep and insomnia eight percent for arthritis five percent for migraine and headaches uh and then in april of 2020 they ran a similar survey and 44 of current CBD users increased their use of CBD once the pandemic began. So um, that anxiety uh, kind of justification has increased, stress and anxiety. Here's something that's interesting. Do you know that the American Psychiatric Association fought against the legalization of cannabis for anxiety disorders in Pennsylvania? Um, No. And does it say why? What's their justification or just that they're against it? (laughs) Well, it will cut into their potential sales of, of pharma of of medicines. Yeah. And uh, do they say the reason why is there any type of press release? Well, they're going to talk about the research. Okay. But what's fascinating to me is they, they, they're the, widespread dispenser of benzodiazepines for anxiety, which are much, much more dangerous than cannabis. Yeah, but we know how the pharmaceutical industry works, right? So let's say it becomes legal. The federal government lifts the ban. There's more research. Pharmaceutical companies will um, identify the molecule that has a benefit. They'll isolate it. They'll replicate it. They'll put a patent on it, and they'll sell it as something else. I thought they were already trying to do that. They, I bet they're they're doing it behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah, probably in the states at which in which it's legal. Legal, yep. Um, and then the moment that that federal ban gets lifted, then it's, it's getting closer and closer every election cycle. I think it will. Um, although now with the House being more Republican, who knows? But it's been bipartisan, so we'll we'll see what happens. Mm. Well, this is interesting. I just believe that post-traumatic stress disorder was under the umbrella of an anxiety disorder. But it's not. The state of Pennsylvania legalized medical marijuana 
for patients in 2016 with 17 qualifying conditions, which include post-traumatic stress disorder. So you could always get medical marijuana for PTSD. The anxiety disorder is new. So basically okay. that's saying like any anxiety condition, you just could say I'm chronic, like generalized anxiety, I'm a worrier, social anxiety, I have a phobia, whatever that may be, OCD. So that, that is new. But they were clearly said that um, this, is a, this is a press release from Rachel Levine, who was the health secretary at the time. Um, adding anxiety disorders as a, as a qualifying condition, uh, but it should not be used as a first-line treatment. Medical marijuana would be medicine to assist in their treatment, but counseling and therapy is absolutely critical, and medical marijuana should not replace that. But it has. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of people who are now getting the diagnosis and being able to get the card have never had a formal psychological evaluation. Hmm. So this is where we get into the nuance. I wouldn't say nuance. This is where you get into the mass over prescribing of a substance for financial gain that starts to enter into the potential for harm that increases. So uh, doctors in 2021 created 200 and 284,000 more certifications based on a single qualifi qualifying condition. And anxiety disorders were the most frequent one identified. Over pain. So in the state of Pennsylvania in 2021, there was 151,415 certifications for just anxiety disorders. So that was the only condition that you sought out a medical marijuana card. But if I walk into a doctor's office and I say, I'm feeling anxious, they, they can just give me a diagnosis of anxiety and give me the ability to get a marijuana. How does, yes. is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. That easy. That easy. Very easy. Um, and, and from the business side of things, there's, the reason why they want to continue to expand the use is to justify the rollout into other states in terms of jobs, revenue, tax revenue. It, by, by putting those three things together, it can help roll out into all the other states for medical use and then ramp, ramping into recreational use or adult use. Because that's the only way that a lot of state politicians can justify it is if the revenue is going to lead to other, um, you know, programs to support funding for teachers or, you know, other types of preventive uh, areas. So 10 states now have legal recreational use in the District of Columbia and 21 total have medical marijuana plus. Yeah, yeah. and um, there's more and that the are looking at recreational. And are we, do, do we have numbers on Colorado, for example, was probably the first state, maybe not the first, but you said California, but I remember the news cycle talking about Colorado. Um, they have a 15% excise tax. Yeah, I have some. The uh, cultivator, 15% sales tax. Here we go. Uh, total millions in terms of state tax revenue. Uh, let's look at California, which is the largest. Uh, it's $774 million. Colorado, $353 million. But when you look at it on a per capita basis, 
That is California's at $20 per capita. Colorado's at 61 per capita. The state of Washington is at 67 per capita. But then the share of state tax revenue, it looks like across the board, it's anywhere from 0.5% to 1.5%. So, you know, in terms of the, the tax revenue, it's a small percentage, but if it can grow, then there's, of course, more money there. This is interesting. A study from Georgia State found that in those states, alcohol sales fell by 15% where medical marijuana had been legalized. Mm. Interesting. That's why um, there are a lot of the beverage companies that are investing in a lot of those. So they're going to have infusion of cannabis in their drinks? Well, they they, they already do? They CBD, already exist. CBD, right? Yeah, yeah. they CBD. already exist. Yeah, they already exist. Uh, the, the problem is that the there's the adoption's not there. You know that it's it's still a lot of those barriers that exist in terms of you know perceptions and you know alternatives things like that. So I, I'm saying barriers, but it's just for a lot of people, it's just not for them, uh, which is fine. In the past, the conservatives on the political spectrum used to really be oppositional to the legalization of drugs due to the potential social consequences. You see that as kind of dissipated a bit. Like they haven't really jumped on that issue anymore. Yeah, I mean, even all the, um, in terms of like the United States politics, a lot of this has bipartisan support. And even that survey was showing that from a political perspective, there's enough surveys out there or Gallup polls or whatever to show that they're, the people they represent support the legalization of marijuana from a federal standpoint. It's like at 80 something percent. Mostly because of you know putting people in prison, the illegal trade, and a lot of people don't see it as harmful as what they believed it once was, mm -hmm. and it should just be treated like alcohol and regulated like anything else. Which I think most of the country doesn't fall on the left or right extreme spectrum. There's a huge middle of people that generally tend to to have some. Water. I use the word libertarian, um, you know libertarian as a way of like supporting individual choice right so you can you can be on the extreme end of conservative or leftist viewpoints but most people still kind of support keeping government out of your life for the most part and support the the independence of people to make decisions that are in the best interest of their own bodies and their own quality of life, as long as you don't harm somebody else. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the, the legalization of cannabis or the legalization of drugs, I think the idea that government instituting controls over that market somehow um, keeps us safer is a fallacy because it just created a black market for it. And the black market for it's much more dangerous. It, we saw that through the uh, drug cartels and being able to just kind of continue to support a, the line of drugs into the United States on an illegal black market that creates a whole other criminal problems and, uh, you know, problems for our children and our neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, we saw that in, in poverty, then the drug trade, the illegal drug trade is a means of supporting your family economically. So it, there's increased violence and a number of things. The idea that the that the government can institute more controls and it somehow leads to better outcomes, I think that idea has died. Would mm -hmm. you agree? Mm, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Yep. 
All right, uh, closing statement, Raj. Let's, uh, how would you surmise this? So there is really no evidence that cannabis is a treatment for mental illness or mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. So look at the, look at the science. Um, we don't have really good data. In fact, one would think that the that the best available evidence would say this: chronic and long term use is associated with mental illness. Mm. So if you think you're going to take it as for as a treatment for an anxiety disorder. Yeah, the evidence really does demonstrate that it's likely to make you more anxious or feel worse in the long term. But if we're reasonable and we consider the nuance, the idea that uh, that cannabis, specifically the CBD component, the cannabinoid, can have some relaxing or sedative effect on the nervous system and it could lead to a a, a short-term decrease in anxiety and potentially improve sleep for someone who's really suffering, then we have to consider its value in that aspect. From a greater uh, perspective as far as recreational use, I think what we step back and say here is that consenting adults, if they're aware of the risks, should have the right to make choices for themselves because some, it could improve creativity. For some, it could... uh, improve their quality of life. There's a social component. It's relaxing. If they're able to moderate that use in a way that doesn't harm them, then they should have every right to be able to use that. But again, it always comes back to me is about being clear of what the risks are. We do that with alcohol. Alcohol is widely used in the United States, but the risks are clearly discussed. And then there's protective measures in society to try to limit the harmful effects like laws around driving under the influence and excessive Uh, intoxication in public places. And I think that's generally where we should go. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call one 800 273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.